what is actually more interesting about this study is the fact that when participants were asked how much they thought they were on their phones, it turns out that they had massively underestimated their use of their smartphones. But what the researchers found was that participants used their devices roughly twice as much as they thought they did. Such a huge gap between perception and reality suggests that we are people who have little or no awareness of what we are actually doing with our devices. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Pastor Theologians Show. Today we're featuring one of the presentations from our recent conference on technology that we held in October of 2019. This talk was given by Felicia Wu Song, who is a professor of sociology at Westmont. And the title of the talk is Digital Life as Secular Liturgy, a Matter of Christian Formation. Let's get right into it. So being a good Anglican, I'd like to start with a confession. I'm glad we already got some confession in already. Um, two summers ago, I left Facebook. I didn't deactivate my account. I didn't figure out how to archive or erase all my earlier posts. I didn't even say goodbye. I just sort of stopped checking one day and walked away. Now, this is fairly unusual for me. I usually do a lot of research and thinking uh, before I make any dramatic changes in my digital life. But leaving Facebook just sort of happened. I was fed up with Facebook's egregious disregard for its users' privacies. I was disgusted by Zuckerberg and his willful blindness about its growing role in damaging our democracy and exacerbating the fragility of so many others around the world. But admittedly, there are times when I miss it. I feel a bit of an outcast because I am no longer on social media. There was that time when my brother and his wife went to London for a vacation and had assumed that I knew because they had posted all these travel pictures about it. That was embarrassing. And then when something outrageous happens in the political world, I often find myself wondering what my quick-witted grad school friends are saying about it. Um, I also miss that sunny feeling of affection that comes with seeing pictures of my friends' kids growing up, graduating high school, moving in on their first days of college. And again, given the fact that I'm trying to build a career and write a book on the social and cultural effects of digital media and technology, leaving social media is a fairly significant occupational risk. With all that said, there are real aspects uh, of being on Facebook that I don't miss at all. I don't miss feeling that hankering to check my newsfeed every time I wake up, come out of a meeting, or sit in the car waiting to pick up my child from school. I don't miss feeling fidgety after I've posted something, constantly wondering if someone has liked it. And I really don't miss experiencing that strange inversion in my psyche when my embodied life becomes background noise to my online life, which somehow feels charged with an exclusive aura of excitement or significance. So the truth of the matter is, being without Facebook for over a year now has helped me to see more clearly how it has been shaping my sense of self and my relationships. 
when I was on Facebook and regularly experiencing the deliciously satisfying river of digital affirmation that flowed as much as I primed it, I sometimes felt like I needed to engage and post and publish in order to exist. I had come to even feel at times that my relationships were primarily cultivated in terms of transaction and reciprocity as I liked and commented my way into trusting interdependence on each other. And now in my post-Facebook life, when I look around me in coffee shops or airport terminals, I'm always taken by how many of us regularly wade through the thick rapids of social media, email, and messaging, and how it has all come to feel so remarkably normal. For isn't this how it feels and looks to be connected and to belong? What it feels like and looks like to be productive, to be successful, and frankly, to be modern? Now, every age is defined by a social imaginary. Charles Taylor explains that a social imaginary, quote, incorporates a sense of the normal expectations we have of each other, the kind of common understanding that enables us to carry out the collective practices that make up our social life. So what he means is a social imaginary is a kind of story that a culture tells itself about what we believe to be our human condition and how we ought to live together. So the main focus of my talk today is to examine this distinctive story, this social imaginary that I think our digital life is training us into and how it is that it feels so remarkably normal, so desirable, so compelling, that is, until we encounter a startlingly different social imaginary, like the one that is embedded in Tish Harrison Warren's description of corporate confession found in Anglican Christian practice. She, she writes, in church each week we repent together, confession reminds us our failures or successes in the Christian life are not what define us, or determine our worth before God or God's people. Instead, we are defined by Christ's life and work on our behalf. We kneel, we confess and repent, and then what a wonder, the word of absolution, almighty God, have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. And then she goes on and says, when we confess and receive absolution together, we're reminded that none of our pathologies, neuroses, or sins, no matter how small or secret, affect only us. We are a church, a community, a family. If we are saved, we are saved together as the body of Christ, as a church. Because of this, I need to hear my forgiveness proclaimed not only by God, but by a representative of the body of Christ in which I receive grace to remind me that though my sin is worse than I care to admit, I am still welcome here. I'm still called into this community and loved. So when we are drinking deeply of our digital world and its social imaginary, and we run across such an account of Christian confession, absolution, and the church, 
It's to come up against something that feels positively alien. Warren's description brings into sharp relief the vast distance between the posture we practice when we are steeped in the social imaginary of our digital ecology and the posture that Christian spirituality encourages. Our normalized digital practices of keeping up, grasping for attention, seeking the rewards of affirmation begin to feel paltry and thin against the sheer magnificence of what is promised in the ritual of confession and absolution to be invited to freely admit our failures and discover that we are still loved and welcomed. So what interests me most is the pathos of our contemporary circumstances. Despite what we may profess in our faith, most of us float along, occasionally waking from time to time, to discover how much we have strayed from this kingdom reality. Preoccupied by the circumstances and demands of daily life and trying ever to keep from getting left behind, we simply lose track of who or where we even are. We lose track of the fact that the Christian tradition produces a social imaginary that understands our embodiment, our worth, our relationship with time and the other in terms that are completely opposite from the story we are trained in when enmeshed within the contemporary digital ecology. And in losing track, we live lives that often express a story that does not quite match up with the theological and faith commitments that so many of us profess to be true. We are like a good friend of mine who once managed to walk out of his flip-flops one day and only discovered this when he returned home barefoot. (laughs) Yeah, wow, right. While walking out of one's shoes might be an accurate way to describe the imperceptible moves and subconscious shifts that are made internally when our pervasive and culture-defining digital ecology comes to shape the very way that we collectively imagine our human condition, it's an image that may undersell the significance of what is in fact happening to us. So this morning, I basically want to do three things and this is put very crudely, I want to describe parts of the story or the social imaginary that the digital is training us in. I want to show how this story is messing with us. And then I want to argue that as the church, we can and should do something about it. Does that sound okay? All right? Okay. So let's start with what's, what's the story we're being trained into? Okay, so one key feature of the social imaginary that comes with our digital ecology is the normalized expectation that we experience permanent connectivity, okay? So I'm gonna unpack this idea of permanent connectivity. So when you look at the history of mass communication and telecommunications, the promise of connection has been there from the start from the telegraph, to the radio, to television. And at the core of the internet, in all of its amazing networking capacity, is a desire to connect, to share. But being connected in 2019, as many of us know, means something dramatically different from what it meant back in the 1990s, when the internet of yesteryear was accessed, remember? through that boxy personal computer thing that was plugged into the wall, right, at your house or 
in the workplace, and it made that terrible sound, and you had to wait, right? So back then, that's what it meant to be connected. Now, in 2019, being connected is closer to a state of consciousness. It's a human condition rather than a discrete behavior or action. So unlike the World Wide Web of old, the character of today's digital technology and social media push us towards living into this state of permanent connectivity. Now, a major part of this shift occurred when the internet slipped beyond our desktop computers and onto our phones and into our, onto our wrists. It became mobile and ubiquitous, with our devices ever in our pockets, in our bags, and even beneath our pillows while we sleep, my college students. We move through our days and nights draped with the imminent sense of the digital, ever available and accessible. It's perpetually po poised to tend to our desires, living and breathing alongside us. What also makes our current state of permanent connectivity so compelling and seemingly inevitable is the fact that the digital media and technology, technology of today has become the primary portal for our social lives. So again, you can remember back to the 1990s, if you're alive then, right? Unlike the chat rooms, remember the chat rooms, right? The chat rooms and the moderated forums, those, those spaces gave us contact to strangers, right? People we didn't know, which was fascinating and exciting. But today, social media's platform, like Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, right? They capitalize on our existing networks of friends, families, colleagues, professional contacts, Right? And so we're often drawn into the internet today, not because we want to connect with strangers, not because we want to connect with the information superhighway, remember that thing, right? Or the limitless shopping extravaganza, right? That e-bags seem to present to us, right, back in the day. But because it promises to connect us to those we love, right? So, so going online in 2019 offers us the possibility, the promise, of communing with those we love, often those we belong to who are in far-flung places. And it's precisely because our digital experiences are thoroughly social that its ubiquity and mobility can become a problem. So if you've come across Sherry Turkle, she's written these poignantly insightful books, Alone Together, Reclaiming Conversation. She, she explores what it means that friends and family are now digitally tethered. Undoubtedly, on the plus side, to be constantly tethered to loved ones can be reassuring and pleasurable. But Charcoal points out that it can also come to serve as a crutch when we become people incapable of solitude, fearful of being alone with ourselves, prone to turning on our screens away from our immediate surroundings whenever we feel awkward, bored, or anxious. And furthermore, being digitally tethered can foster a growing expectation of constant availability to one's friends and family, regardless of time or day. And just as the, as the digital is always accessible to us, we come to expect the same of people. So while our psychological longings to stay connected to the people we love may keep us in, con in a constant state of vigilance and responsiveness to notifications at a moment's notice, 
Our condition of permanent connectivity is further fed by the infinite novelty that is designed into our current digital media and services. From the moment a young person gets her own smartphone, she knows that she is gaining access to a mode of life that is perpetually filled with possibility. Her social media feeds are ceaselessly refreshed. Her games and apps are always updating, and there are always new texts, new snaps, new stories to tend. And when the mobile, social, and infinitely novel aspects of the contemporary digital experience are mixed together, the result is a psychological cocktail of pleasures, anxieties, and felt expectations. This is what it means to live in permanent connectivity, with our devices in our possession, the promise of fulfillment, completion, emotional connection feels ever within a few inches of our reach. And it's these key features that make the digital experience of today very difficult to resist. Indeed, even if our devices are not powered on, or even in one's possession, our consciousness has become sufficiently trained and thoroughly immersed in the habits of mind formed by an unceasing awareness of the constantly shifting landscape of what's being said and posted in the digital realm. As Dalton Conley has described, life is constantly being lived elsewhere, as our bodies are in one place, but our minds and consciousness dwell on the stuff that's zipping around on our screens. Mark Edmondson, professor of literature, presciently captured this shift of consciousness all the way back in 20, uh, 2008, when he wrote about how the internet was changing the college students he was teaching at the University of Virginia. He wrote this. Classes matter to them, but classes are just part of an ever-enlarging web of activities and diversions. Students now seek to master their work, not to be taken over by it and consumed. They want to dispatch it, do it well and quickly, then get on to the many other things that interest them. For my students live in the future and not the present. They dwell in possibility. The idea is to keep moving, never to stop. And after class, Edmondson observes what we all as professors notice. What happens when students let out? The phones are out. He writes, our students need to disperse themselves again, get away from the immediate, dissolve the present away. So with the infinitely novel content of digital media inevitably accruing over the course of a 90-minute class or a 90-minute plenary session, right, our students, all of us, we grasp for our phones at the end of class sessions like oxygen tanks, as if we had been submerged underwater, right? We finally come up for air. And our classes and our sessions, our meetings have become the interruptions in our lives. And, they eager, and we eagerly dispatch of our coursework as quickly as possible, right, in order to get on with our actual lives, which are mediated through our handheld screens, right? 
So if we're honest, and I'm hearing from many of you that, that you are being honest, we know, right, that college students aren't the only ones who live this way, right? When we're at work, watching our kids, having lunch, sitting through a meeting, right? Our regular use of the digital has trained us to feel the sense something else is always happening, something potentially more important, and we feel the itch to peek and to know. And the result is that wherever we are, whatever's taking place around us, whatever proximate reality we are submerged in, it begins to feel less interesting, more stifling, and more like something we want to be released from or bypass altogether. So it's no wonder that a professor of literature, Mark Edmondson, would lament this psychological outcome of digital technologies. For he's a teacher who's invested his life in guiding students to appreciate the richness embedded in the slow and steady work of story, right, literature in our lives. And it's a travesty to see students who seem constitutionally unable to disconnect from the digital flow. So what becomes of us when we too become people so permanently connected to whatever streams of reality are being piped through our digital devices that we are incapable of allowing ourselves to be consumed, engulfed by the presence of another, whether it be a person, a piece of literature, or the triune God who we profess to worship. So in all this, I can't help but poignantly wonder, it might be rather apt to borrow the biblical notion of abiding to describe our relationship with our technologies today. In the same way that Jesus called his disciples to abide in him as he would abide in them, we too have become a people who abide in the digital, and the digital abides in us. Now we're going to chew on that one for a while. Okay, so we'll move on to two. Um, how is the story of permanent connectivity messing with us? Okay. A few years ago, a study reported that young people use their smartphones an average of five hours a day. That's roughly one-third of their total waking hours. And before those of us who are older pile on about the digital habits of the young people, right, the truth is Gen Xers have often been found to be no less tethered to their devices and screens. 68% of parents and 78% of teens check their devices at least hourly. Parents use technology and media to nearly the same degree as their teenagers. Younger parents in their 30s and 40s are even more dependent. But what is actually more interesting about this study is the fact that when participants were asked how much they thought they were on their phones, it turns out that they had massively underestimated their use of their smartphones. But what the researchers found was that participants used their devices roughly twice as much as they thought they did. Such a huge gap between perception and reality suggests that we are people who have little or no awareness of what we are actually doing with our devices. The researchers write that these five hours often go by with little reflection because they are an accumulation of micro-moments in between meetings, in between classes, waiting online, waiting for the hot water to turn on, right? The digital practices that characterize our lives are largely habitual, automatic, even compulsive. 
And just last year, a Google report noted that our constant exposure to social media, email, and news apps on our smartphones is creating, quote, a constant sense of obligation, generating unintended personal stress. So as our cortisol levels rise and we feel growing discomfort, we are driven to check our phones even more in order to relieve that anxiety. However, when we check our phones, we again encounter something new, something else that causes our cortisol levels to rise again, and the cycle of stress and connectivity begins. Add on top of that trends in the collective disruptions to our sleep. The vast majority of us sleep with our phones in our bedrooms within reach and are therefore prone to checking our phones in the middle of the night to respond to a text, resume a game, or check our social media feeds. Uh, a a seven-country poll found that over 70% of 18 to 34-year-olds reported sleeping with their phones in their bedrooms within reach, and then adults 35 to 64, uh, 55 to 70% of them reported doing the same, okay? So all of these habits and outcomes are hardly surprising when we consider how the digital media industries are invested in securing and keeping, might I even dare to use the word colonizing, our attention, and abashedly searching for new and efficient ways to monetize our most basic needs for relationship and belonging. Most users are unaware or often forget that social media like Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, are designed with the leading edge insights of behavioral psychology, brain science, to draw us in and keep us ensnared. The same experts that design casinos and other addictive industries are brought in to consult about what types of notifications, what color buttons and badges ought to be, what types of emotional content are optimal for training our brains to become activated with dopamine that charge up the pleasure and novelty pathways of our brains. Brilliantly calculated algorithms have been painstakingly developed to chew through the trail of data that we have consented to have collected about ourselves, what posts we respond to, what videos we watch, what videos we ignore, what click patterns, our viewing times, keywords in our emails, all these in order to calculate the optimal way to keep us tethered to their site. All this data is used to deliver the content these platforms think we want, but not necessarily with the nuance and complexities of reality that we so desperately need individually and collectively. So we're getting messed with. Digital compulsions, collective street sleep deprivation, the role that the media industries play in intentionally engineering these tendencies in us, these may be seen as some of the troublesome effects of our permanent connectivity, but I actually want to turn our attention back to the question of social imaginary, the, the story that we're being told about what it means to be human, and nudge us in a more explicitly sociological direction. So in the late 19th century, Max Weber laid down a foundation for thinking about the effects of industrialization and modern capitalism 
on our human condition. And there have been contemporary theorists that have drawn on Weber to argue that the logic and technique of bureaucracies and corporate management have come to impact the most immediate of our relational experiences of family and friendship. So in like manner, I want to argue that social media and our digital ecology have the effect of industrializing our relationships by shaping the postures and expectations we bring to our mediated communications and interactions online. So I'm, I'm going to just briefly touch on, on three examples to kind of drive, drive home this point. So uh, the first example is the drive to quantify. Okay, so the social media industry has not only constructed an elaborate system that collects quantified data about us, but what's interesting is it perpetually frames and infuses our experience of relationship, communication, and information with numbers. If we, think, we stop and think about it, what does it mean to predominantly sustain relationships through platforms where we are encouraged to evaluate the quality of our social lives through lists and counts of followers, friends, likes, shares, posts, comments, or even a single number that so publicly quantifies our degree of influence and worth. Of course, it sounds silly and perhaps even pathetic to suggest that we actually might base our sense of self or our social standing on these numbers. But how many of us can honestly say that we aren't mildly injured when few people, or God forbid, no one, gives our post a thumbs up? How many of us can honestly say we don't feel a jolt of satisfaction when someone finds so much value added in what we have offered on the altar of the social media feed that they actually share or retweet it? When we daily interface with a digital environment that encourages us to measure our chances of success or failure in our social lives as a matter of quantity of connections and interactions rather than quality, can we be so confident as to assert that our imaginations and appetites are not shaped in some small but substantive way by what the industry has defined as important? As social media perpetuates, uh, perpetually updates our numbers, so too do we perpetually check our numbers. And when we check, what exactly are we looking for? What do the numbers mean? And what do they mask? Is it an assurance of belonging, of legitimacy, of being desired? So that's the first, the drive to quantify. Second example is the drive to reify. Reify. R-E-I-F-Y, <laughs> it's a weird word. I always have to check spell on that. Um, the fun of social media is that, like satellite TV or a Las Vegas buffet, there's always something new to consume. Unlike the scarcity of relationships that humans have historically had to make do with, the blessing of social media and our digital technologies is the promise of abundance. Unfortunately, like many things in life, the blessings also become the curse. As we typically straddle multiple platforms each day, the sheer volume of interaction and content that we are privy to forces us to develop techniques of management to process, read, delete, skip over, or engage the ceaseless stream of requests for our attention. 
This quandary of abundance drives us towards what George Lukacs called reification, a process where a relation between people that takes on the character of a thing. I'll say that again. It's a process where a relation between people takes on the character of a thing. So through reification, I move closer to treating the dynamic between you and me as a thing. Right? This is sort of like if any Martin Buber, I, thou people out there, right? This is like the opposite, right? It's the it, right? With reification, I become inclined to objectify the people I love, the messages they post, as mere tasks to complete, or as a means to be used or manipulated to boost my numbers and my ego. Through reification, I relate less and I broadcast more. Through reification, I mechanize the complex dance that social interaction involves and prefer the prepackaged templates of emojis and likes. When the dynamic between you and me becomes closer to a thing, I can more easily go onto Instagram or Snapchat and gossip, announce a milestone, compliment on Facebook, heap verbal violence upon another with little or no sensation of emotional cost. So the, the, the thingness that we are driven to, because there's just so much communication we need to manage, right, is what gets developed um, because there, there's just too much for us to, to sort through. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to tune in next week for part two of Felicia Wu Song's presentation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, the CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.